The passage this morning is from John chapter 10, 1 through 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord and I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was an article in the Business Insider back in August titled, A Pilot Explains What It Really Means When There's Turbulence During a Flight. Patrick Smith, he's a, a commercial airline pilot, and he describes how over and over the number one anxiety amongst flyers, and you could probably guess this, uh, would be turbulence. He says, but the reality is on the pilot's side, from the pilot's perspective, it's just a it's just a blip. It's, it's normal. L listen to what he writes. For all intents and purposes, a plane cannot be flipped upside down, thrown into a tailspin, or otherwise flung from the sky by even the mightiest gust or air pocket. Conditions might be annoying and uncomfortable, but the plane is not going to crash. Turbulence is an aggravating nuisance for everybody, including the crew. But it's also, for lack of a better term, normal. From a pilot's perspective, it is ordinarily seen as a convenience issue, not a safety issue. When a flight changes altitude in search of smoother conditions, this is by and large in the interest of comfort. The pilots, pilots aren't worried about the wings falling off. They're trying to keep their customers relaxed and everybody's coffee where it belongs. In the worst of it, you probably imagine the pilots in a sweaty lather, the captain barking orders, hands tight on the wheel as the ship lifts from one side to another. Nothing could be further from the truth. And Patrick Smith concludes, while the passengers are fretting about the turbulence, the pilots are having a casual conversation about their morning orange juice. It's a striking picture of on the one hand, high, high levels of insecurity, 
high levels of anxiety, no confidence, and on the other hand, uh, high levels of security, high levels of confidence and no anxiety separated by a cockpit door. Now, most of us would agree that we live life from the perspective of the passenger, that we live life with high levels of anxiety and high levels of fear, which is the definition of insecurity. And so we're insecure about a myriad of things. We're insecure about body image. We're insecure about job performance. We're insecure about our personalities. We're insecure about our lack of success. We're insecure about uh, the, the dark and the evil in our world. The list goes on and on that we have these, these deep insecurities that are in the midst of the turbulence in our lives. But every one of us, every one of us longs for the peace and the calm. Every one of us longs for the pilot's perspective in the midst of that same turbulence. The question is, is it possible? Is it possible to have that level of security? The answer is yes. The question is where? Where do you get your security from? And to answer that, we're going to look at the one who knows you, the one who protects you, and the one who loves you. Let's start with the one who knows you. The first six verses of John 10 are a parable on what we just saw happen in John chapter 9 when the blind man was healed. So Jesus is giving a parable to describe what just happened in real life in John chapter 9. The thieves and the robbers in verse 1 are the religious authorities, the Pharisees who didn't care a lick about the blind man. They didn't care to give him life. They didn't care to protect him. In fact, they casted him out of the synagogue. They were operating. He was just a cog in their wheel for their own agenda. Right? The shepherd in this parable in the first six verses of John 10 is, it's Jesus, the one who actually cared for the blind man, who healed him, who took care of him, who protected him. And then, of course, the, the sheep in this parable that Jesus gives is the blind man. But notice as a sheep, notice which voice, which we see surface in those first six verses, which voice did the blind man as the sheep follow? And he followed Jesus. He followed Jesus' voice. He didn't follow the voice of the religious authorities, the Pharisees, because they were thieves and robbers. So what we see here, it's beautiful, because what Jesus is doing here is giving some, some explanation to this miraculous healing of the blind man and what actually happened to bring this man to a point of healing and ultimately to confess Jesus as the Christ and to fall down as we saw and worship him. That that's what's happening here in this parable. And we see that, that, that security, even with the blind man who gets kicked out of the synagogue, which last week I mentioned, that was more than just, oh, he can't go to synagogue anymore. He was kicked out of the social and religious life of Israel. Absolute isolation and rejection, which, by the way, is a super ingredient for insecurity. But the blind man found his security in what? In being known by Jesus and being called by Jesus. So let's start with being known by Jesus. Verse 3. What does it mean to be known by Jesus? Verse 3, the sheep hear his voice. 
and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. You see, the picture here is of a sheepfold in the Middle East or in the near, ancient Near East. And it was a, an enclosure, a fenced enclosure. And what it describes here is a, is a, a sheepfold that have many sheep with a number of shepherds that own them. And, and the shepherd comes up to the fold and he calls out his sheep by name and they hear his voice and they follow him. Now, what's striking about what Jesus says here is that the shepherd knows the sheep and owns them before they ever hear his voice and respond. The blind man, who this is a parable of what happened, the blind man was known by Jesus and even owned by Jesus. He belonged to Jesus before Jesus actually called him out and the blind man heard his voice and came to him and bowed down in worship. You say, how's that possible? Well, the scriptures speak of Jesus Christ purchasing us by his blood. The scriptures speak that we're bought at a price. Acts chapter 20, when, when Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, he says, care for the church of God, which he obtained or purchased by his own blood. Now, if, if you're purchased by Jesus' blood, if blood is the currency that purchased you, when did that happen? Happened nearly 2,000 years ago when he died on the cross. You see, salvation that we talk about through the cross and resurrection of Jesus is not just a generic salvation. That when Jesus died on the cross and he poured out his blood, he poured it out to purchase you by name. You individually by name and certainly the church corporate. But that he knew you, that he purchased you, that you belong to him. He accomplished your salvation on the cross. He didn't just make it possible. He actually accomplished it because the blood was the currency that was needed to purchase you. Psalm 139 says, Jesus knows you by creation, how he made you. So take those two together. Jesus knows you by nature of creating you. He knows you by nature of purchasing you by his blood nearly 2,000 years ago. And then he comes to get you after he's purchased you. You all are familiar with will call. You know how will call works, right? Will call is the place in the stadium or it's the place in the theater where you go to pick up a ticket that you purchased weeks in advance, maybe even months in advance. And when you purchase a ticket weeks in advance, months in advance, when you purchase it, it's yours, which means the seats that you purchase in that stadium, in that theater, belong to you. Nobody else can get them. You've bought them. Before you ever lay your hands on the physical ticket at will call, you own those tickets. You've purchased them. That, that's the imagery that Jesus is conjuring up when he says he calls his own, meaning he has purchased you already. You belong to him. He accomplished your salvation in full on the cross, and then he comes to get you. He comes to get you. Question is, how does he come to get you? So security is being known by Jesus, but it doesn't stop there. Security is being called by Jesus. So after he's purchased you, which 2,000 years ago, he comes to get you by calling you. Look at verse three. 
He calls. He calls his own sheep by name. Verse four, the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Verse five, a stranger they will not follow for they do not know the voice of strangers. You know, to this day, if you go to the Middle East, you will watch shepherds. If there are, if there are a, a, a shepherds in the field or in some sort of enclosure, sheepfold, shepherds will walk up and they will call their sheep by name. And the sheep will follow. They will move towards the shepherd. If a shepherd or someone comes up and that is not the shepherd of the sheep but calls those sheep by name, they won't come because they don't recognize the voice. They don't know the voice. See, the sheep follow the voice that they, they trust and they know. And there's actually a big distinction between um, Western shepherds and Eastern shepherds. Western shepherds, generally speaking, will move and gather and their sheep by, by coming behind them with a sheepdog. And the sheepdog runs around and, and just herds them, and moves them forward. Eastern shepherds don't do that. Generally speaking, Eastern shepherds will be in front of their flock and they simply call them by name and the sheep follow because the sheep listen and they know the voice of the shepherd. This is the, the imagery that, that the prophet Jeremiah has in mind. In Jeremiah 31, when he's describing the new covenant in Jesus, verses 33 to 34, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. See what Jeremiah is getting at here and what God is describing in the new covenant of Jesus is that no longer is the law a sheepdog that drives and, 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 and moves and, cat and pushes us forward in fear. No, in the new covenant, the law is written on our hearts, which is language, meaning we get a new heart and a new heart that can actually hear the voice of Jesus so that when he calls, our heart says, yes, I know that voice and I'm gonna follow let me give you two points of application here. First one would be this. <clears throat> Maybe you've been coming to East for weeks now. Maybe months. Maybe it's your first time back in church in a long time. Maybe it's your first time in church, period. And maybe over these weeks and these months, you have heard the word of God and interacted with it in a way that you never have before. That maybe you've been brought to tears or maybe, maybe you're, you're challenged and you've been comforted and you've been convicted by this, this word that previously was like another book on the shelf to you. What's happening? Jesus is calling you. He's calling you. You're recognizing his voice. Follow him. Follow him. And if that's you, if that's where you're at, share with somebody what's going on with the friend that brought you or after the service with me or someone else, that what's happening is you're, you're seeing your need for Jesus Christ, your need for him, that you're a sinner in need of a savior and that Jesus is the only savior and that he's calling you, he's stirring your heart. So I encourage you, if that's you, 
let someone know so that we can help you in this journey of following Jesus. Let me give you a second point of application. If you've responded to the call of Jesus and you're following him, what amazing assurance does this bring? That he knows you, that he's purchased you, that he accomplished your salvation on the cross. He didn't just make it possible. When he called you and you responded, he called you because he had already purchased you and accomplished your salvation, which means that salvation ultimately doesn't depend on your response. It ultimately depends on Jesus as the one who purchased you and Jesus as the one who calls you and has called you. There's a tremendous amount of security when you understand this, that Jesus knows you and that he's called you. Listen, the cross as the means by which we're saved, the cross is not a cattle call. It's not a cattle call. It's Jesus Christ purchasing you by name with his blood. And that brings a tremendous amount of security to be known like that intimately. So where does your security come from? First, the one who knows you. Second, the one who protects you. Starting in verse seven, Jesus is gonna build out this parable and he's gonna add some new imagery to the parable to build it out. And one of the significant imageries that he adds is, is seen in verse seven. When he says, I am the door of the sheep. And then he says in verse nine, I am the door. Now, what does this mean? Well, in, in the Middle East, in the ancient Near East, there were sheepfolds. It was an enclosure, a fence. And then there was one opening into this enclosure. And that's where the sheep walked in and that's where the sheep walked out. Oftentimes, shepherds would literally sit in that opening. Or at night, they would lay down across the opening, signifying that if anything came out of the enclosure or if anything came in through the door, they first had to go through the shepherd. And this was particularly important at night when the wolves would come out seeking to devour the sheep. And so it was the shepherd's way, laying across that door, it was the shepherd's way of saying, over my dead body, will you hurt my sheep? I'm gonna lay my life down to protect my sheep. It was, it was the most amazing picture of, of selfless sacrifice on behalf of the sheep. And notice what Jesus does here. He, contra he contrasts that picture of a shepherd laying down in front of that opening to protect his sheep with who? The hired hand. Look, what, look how he describes the hired hand in verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep. There it is, right? The hired hand doesn't own the sheep. He hasn't purchased the sheep. Sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares, cares nothing for the sheep. I grew up playing Pop Warner football. And one of the years that I played Pop Warner football, I had a coach. His name was Coach Barry. And Coach Barry, in my mind, hung the moon. He was awesome. He was cool. We were the Deerfield Beach Raiders. We were yellow and green. Those were our colors. Yellow helmets, green uniforms, yellow numbers. The problem is, in at least Pop Warner football, you get the helmets, that, the, the colored helmets, ours were yellow, with those just boring 
gray factory face masks, right? So Coach Barry, with his assistant coach one weekend, collected all of our helmets, took them home, and painted every face mask green to match our uniforms. It was amazing. We were like the modern day Oregon Ducks for Pop Warner. We had green face masks, everybody else had gray, okay? It was awesome. I don't, it didn't change the way we played, but we at least looked good, right? Showing up to games. I mean, my, the stock of Coach Barry just skyrocketed for me. He, he spent his whole weekend taking these face masks off, spray painting them, putting them back on. Big sacrifice. So after the season one year, Coach Barry invites some of the players on the team to the fields, to the Little League field for home run derby. And it was a Little League field, so the fence was 200 feet, short fence. And uh, we got 10 pitches, 10 pitches apiece to see who could you know, hit the most home runs. Well, a guy joined us who actually was a high school baseball player. His name was Denny. Denny was big. Denny gets up there and he gets his 10 pitches. Well, early on, third, fourth, I forget which pitch it was. He launches one. It was definitely a home run. Uh, but beyond the 200-foot fence, a little ways back, another 50 feet, 75 feet, was a fence that, that um, went up against a row of houses. And then there was a massive net, you know, to protect these houses from baseballs. Well, Denny launched one so high and so far, it went over the net. So we're all watching this and gasping, and it comes down, and there's this loud shatter straight through a window, straight into a den, but I had Coach Barry there, the man I trusted, the man who was, had called us out there, who, who I knew would walk out and, and talk to the property owner, you know, and be the shield for us, 10 and 11-year-olds. Next thing I know, I turn around, and Coach Barry, probably a grown man in his mid-30s, is sprinting for his car. <laughs> he gets in his car. And he leaves. Now, there's two problems here. There's more than two, but there's definitely two. <laughs> Number one is all these 10 and 11-year-olds whose parents had dropped them off with the assurance of a coach and an adult with them is now gone. And number two, there's a furious property owner. I, I still remember the moment. I remember it. I remember what I felt. There was this sense of, of fear, there was this sense of being totally abandoned by someone I had trusted. Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. I'm the door of the sheep. When the wolves come, when evil comes, he says, I don't run because I protect my sheep who I know and who I've called. And as protector, and as the one who cares for you, he's committed to bringing you abundant life. Look at, look at verse nine. If anyone enters by me, Jesus says, he will be saved, will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, what does it mean that Jesus as your protector is committed to giving you abundant life. This gets misinterpreted quite a bit. 
that abundant life oftentimes is described as the comfortable life or the good life or the healthy life or a life, life with, with lots of resources. If you interpret it that way, then you run into a real problem when your life is touched by evil because you got two choices. Either Jesus failed to protect you or you have to explain away the evil. No, abundant life that Jesus describes in verse 10 shows up again in verse 28 at the end of the chapter, and it's described as eternal life. Eternal life, as John describes it in his gospel, and as we've seen, is not some future life that you merely get in heaven. Eternal life is a different life now. It's a life now that, that has different motivations, a life that has a different source for joy and for peace. That's called eternal life. It's the life that is increasingly being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus says, I give them abundant life, he's saying I give them an eternal life, a different kind of life now. And that means that when Jesus says he protects you, this imagery of being the door to the sheep, it does not mean that your life will not be touched by evil. It does mean that if your life is touched by evil, it first passes through Jesus Christ. That's what it means that he's protector. And that if your life has been touched by evil, by abuse, by injustice, by sickness, whatever it may be, he promises in Hebrews 12 that it is for your good, that it's for your holiness, which is another way to say being conformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, it says it produces a, 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 the fruit of righteousness. So when Jesus protects you and he cares for you, it does not mean that you'll never be touched by evil. It just means that whatever evil comes into your life, it first passes through the door, which is Jesus Christ. And that means that whatever he allows in and out of the sheepfold, to use that imagery, is for your good. It's for your best. And you can trust him because ultimately, he cares for you and he protects you. And whatever he lets come in is for your good and in your best interest. Now, what's this have to do with security? Everything. Ezekiel chapter 34, which is the parallel of John chapter 10. In Ezekiel 34, God is calling out the false shepherds of Israel. They are, they're not taking care of God's people. They're using God's people for their own interests, for their own self-promotion, and God calls them out. And in Ezekiel 34, he says, I am going to put one shepherd over my people, my servant David. Obviously, David as the shepherd, the great shepherd of Israel was pointing forward to the, because David was imperfect, was pointing forward to the coming shepherd that we see in John 10, the one revealed as Jesus Christ. But towards the end of Ezekiel 34, there's a, there's a series of about three or four verses where this one phrase appears three times. And it is the result of being shepherded by God. He says to my people who are shepherded by me, they will, and here's the phrase, dwell secure. They will dwell secure. They will dwell secure. 
that there is this incredible security of being shepherded by Jesus, who is the great shepherd. And what we learn from this is that your security is not derived from circumstances. And your security is not derived from uh, uh, situations. That your security is derived from a person, Jesus Christ, who is the one who allows circumstances in and out of your life. But your security comes from him not the circumstances. So where does your security come from? First, the one who knows you. Second, the one who protects you. And finally, the one who loves you. Look at verse 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And then verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. In the ancient Near East, shepherds, would be willing to lay their lives down. That's what would describe a good shepherd, a shepherd that said, I would be willing to lay my life down to protect my sheep. But the reality is that rarely happened that they lost their life because that wasn't really a good thing. If the shepherd was killed, then the the flock was vulnerable. Nobody was there to protect the flock. See, a shepherd's weapon was their staff, and that's how they They kept wolves away. They kept evil away. It's also how they protected their own lives so they could still shepherd their sheep. Jesus' weapon is the great shepherd is not a staff. It's the cross. That's Jesus' weapon. That's how he wards off evil. That's how he wards off the evil in your life. Sin, death, the devil. It's how he wins the battle. It's how he won the battle is by the cross. And note here in John 10, the strong language, that this is not, his death was not exemplary. He didn't die to show the sheep how to be sacrificial. No, he died what? For the sheep. It's substitution. He died for you. He took the death penalty for you. Sometimes when we see that language in John 10, that Jesus is the good shepherd, that word good sometimes doesn't, It doesn't communicate what's really there. In fact, D.A. Carson, he says this in commenting about how we typically, in the West, how we hear good and how we kind of visualize the good shepherd. He says this, many people in the industrialized West are inclined to think of shepherds as sentimental beings, perhaps somewhat effeminate with their arms full of cuddly lambs. And this couldn't be anywhere near the truth of what it means to be the good shepherd. The word good, probably noble, is more appropriate, the noble shepherd. Because a shepherd's work was tiring, it was dangerous. And Jesus as the good shepherd, what made him the good shepherd? When he bled, when he sweated drops of blood, when he suffered for us, when he died for us. Uh, Isaiah 53 picks up this imagery of what it means for Jesus to be the good shepherd. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him out of the anguish of his soul. Jesus' work as good shepherd was anything but tidy and sanitized. He bled for you. He sweat for you. He suffered for you. He died for you. 
a little over a year ago in October 2016, after 12 hours of searching for survivors in China where four residential buildings had collapsed, after 12 hours, the rescue workers found the final survivor. And it was a, a three-year-old girl that was clutched in the arms of her dead father. And what was so striking about this story, and you can read it, you can look at it, you can read it, look it up, because there's a picture of when the rescue workers, they're lifting all this concrete and rubble, and they finally had to lift this long, heavy cement pillar. And they were able to lift it up and pull it off, and they, they took pictures of what they saw. And you see this father, he was a 26-year-old man, who's sitting, looks like Indian style, with his back draped over his three-year-old girl. He was dead, and the three-year-old girl suffered minor injuries. And listen, listen to what, what one of the rescue workers said to a reporter. The child was able to survive entirely thanks to the fact that her dad used his own flesh and blood to prop up a life-saving space for his daughter. What a picture. Jesus Christ was crushed under the weight of your sin. He was crushed under the weight of your sin, but covered you, providing a life-saving space so that you wouldn't be crushed. And why did he do that? Because he loves you. He loves you. And on top of this selfless sacrifice, we read here in John 10 that demonstrates his love, but we read that it, it was voluntary. Jesus makes the point in verses 17 and 18. He says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. The substitutionary nature of Jesus' death in your place, the voluntary nature of his death for you, it creates a radical new dynamic for life. And here's the dynamic. I am so bad. I am so sinful that he had to. Substitution. He had to die for me because there's no way I could pay the penalty for my own sin. It would require death. He had to die for me, substitution. I'm that bad, I'm that sinful. And I am so incredibly loved that he was glad to, there's the voluntary, that he was glad to die for me. And when you have that dynamic, I'm so bad he had to die for me, I'm so loved he was glad to be crushed under the weight of my sin. Boy, now we can talk about security. Now we can talk about security. See, security, when you understand that dynamic, it's no longer based on your performance, how good you're living, how sinless your past week was. It's not based on your performance, and it is not based on your circumstances. It is solely rooted in the work of Jesus Christ. 
your Lord and Savior, your good shepherd, your noble shepherd, who knows you, who protects you, who loves you.